this book is about love and grief, not just as distinct phenomenon, but as linked phenomenon and as, as things that we often experience at once because we often experience many things at once. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is the journalist Catherine Schultz, staff writer for The New Yorker and author of the 2010 bestseller, Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error, and the Pulitzer Prize and National Magazine award-winning article, The Really Big One, a fascinating and, if I'm to be completely honest, terrifying examination of the Cascadia fault line and the earthquake and tsunami it is likely to generate. Her new book, Lost and Found, is a memoir of grief, but also a quietly ecstatic love story, and briefly, a surprising series of lessons about typography, meteorites, and knowing that you don't always know what you're looking for. Catherine Schultz, welcome to Kobo. Thank you so much for having me on. The book is split into three parts. Lost, drawing on the death of your father to talk about all the many different kinds of losing. Found, which starts with a wide focus on finding, but pulls in close on the wonder of finding love. And then the conjunction, and, that bridges and reconciles the two. To start off, could you tell us a few things about your father that would be good for us to know as we approach the first part of this book? I would be delighted to. It's actually always a real pleasure to talk about my dad. Um, and it was a pleasure to get to write about him, uh, which might seem like a strange thing to say about a, a story of grief, you know, of losing him. But uh, as I as I say extensively in the book, love and grief are really intertwined. So it does feel like a chance to remember him. And, and that's fun. Uh, my dad was a really amazing guy. Uh, he, um, he did not have an easy early life. He was... Uh, born in Tel Aviv to a Polish mother who was uh, the only member of a very large family to get out of Poland before the war began, World War II. Uh, and she lost um, both parents and 10 of her 11 siblings in Auschwitz. Uh, and then um, that my father's family wound up uh, leaving Tel Aviv uh, due to the increasing violence there uh, in the uh, kind of run up to the formation of the state of Israel. Um, and getting kind of basically sort of kicked around the globe by the combined forces of, of poverty and geopolitical turmoil. And they finally settled in the United States, uh, all of which is to say that, that nothing in my father's life would have predicted uh, that he would become this incredibly joyful, uh, just this curious, happy person. But he really was. Uh, he, he was fascinated by life, fascinated by people uh, and a great dad because he shared that kind of curiosity and enthusiasm uh, with his kids. So it, it was a um, it was a very happy childhood, despite my my childhood was a very happy one uh, in, in kind of sharp contrast to his own. And one of the traits that you describe for him in the in the context of of losing things is that he himself was a a frequent and almost enthusiastic loser of things. Um, <laughs> whereas Whereas you find that uh, something that taxes you a little more. Uh, yes, that's wonderfully put. An enthusiastic loser of things. It's true. My father um, just kind of fit to a T the stereotype we have of the absent-minded professor. He just he was incredibly brilliant. You know, he spoke seven languages. He had a um, essentially flawless memory. He was just very very astute about. 
um, many things in the world, but not kind of its material components. So <laughs> as brilliant as he was, he just, you know, three times a week, where are my keys? What happened to my wallet? You know, I mean, he went through more kind of cell phones and credit cards. It's amazing. These companies kept providing him with new ones. Uh, so yes, he was, uh, he, he was um, truly stellar at losing things. Uh, and it's true. That is not something I inherited from him. Um, in that respect, I'm a lot more like my mother. I, uh, kind of air on the excessively fastidious side. And I uh, feel, you know, low level anxiety. If like a book is out of place on the shelf, never mind if I can't figure out where my wallet is. So we were very different in that respect. The The book itself um, you know, describes the, the process and the experiences that you and your family went through as your father died. And, um, and it, it it creates some of the most moving early parts of the book, and I won't I won't ask you to spoil them because they're truly some of the the joy that you get in reading it. But afterwards, you wrote your father's obituary and eulogy, and and I also had that particular writing assignment, and it's probably the only one where I have perfect recall of where I was while writing it, but no memory of how the words got on the page. In your case, you wrote the eulogy, and then an article about the death of your father, and now this book. And so I guess one of the things I'm wondering is, are they all part of the same extended work in a way? Mm. That's a wonderful question and one that I haven't been asked. And it is really interesting. I, I like this phrase you used, writing assignment. I mean, yes, unfortunately, life does assign, you know, many of us the, the task at some point of, of um putting into words how we feel about losing a loved one. Uh, but it's interesting, these are four, you know, if you think about it kind of in those terms, these are four very different genres, you know, an obituary uh, or three, I guess, an obituary, uh, a eulogy, and, and then a book. Um, so, you know, in the broad sense, are they part of the same project? Well, they're part of the project of, you know, being alive and, and figuring out how to lose people and, and how to grieve them. Uh, but they do feel really distinct for me. Um, like you, I can remember exactly where I was uh, when, um, I shouldn't say I wrote the obituary because I did it alongside my sister, strangely kind of kneeling um, by my mother's bedside, which makes it sound kind of prayerful, but oddly it was more like being kids, like somehow there we were on the floor of the bedroom, like, again, like we were still three and a half feet tall or something. Um, uh, I have almost no memory of writing the eulogy, uh, although I can remember practicing to give it um, kind of already dressed in my nice clothes before the uh, service began. Uh, and those feel really distinct from the book in part because by the time I sat down to write the book, um, it was not, I don't wanna say it wasn't an emotional process. I find writing anything sort of a grocery list emotional, uh, but, it, but it wasn't, um, people often ask if a book like this is cathartic in some ways. And I guess for me, I felt like by the time I sat down to write it, um, it's not that I feel that I've processed every emotion of grief I'll ever have, but the ones that I'm writing about in the book, uh, I had, you know, I was able to write about them because they had already kind of settled down from the state of high emotion to a thing I could think about quite deliberately. So they they felt quite different, actually. And each one, as you say, is a little more distant in time from, from that moment of saying goodbye. Do you find that different things resonate with that distance or you kind of uncover different layers of that experience from that distance yes absolutely i mean i write about this a little bit in the book but it was you know i at some point in the book i describe grief as this tide that 
recedes, you know, again, I don't mean to suggest it ever kind of fully goes away or couldn't come sort of surging back, but I describe it as a tide that recedes and it's, it's like any actual tide, you know, it goes away and there's like all this stuff on the shoreline. And um, it was surprising to me what was on, you know, so to speak, the shoreline of myself when, when that tide went away. Um, so yes, I mean, the, the most striking example, and I say this in the book, I, uh, I said earlier, my dad spoke seven languages uh, and um shortly before he died, you know, maybe a week before he died, uh, he stopped speaking entirely. Uh, to this day, we have no idea why. The doctors had no idea why. It wasn't even clear at that point that he was dying. Um, he just went silent. And um, in the moment, there was so much else going on that it's not that it wasn't obvious that that had happened and, and disturbing and strange. And we were trying to solve it. And, you know, we missed him and we're trying to communicate and we don't know what he understands um, or what he wishes he could say. But it didn't feel like the most the most pressing question was, is he dying or not? What's going on here? You know, sort of diagnostic. But after the fact, um, yes, when when everything had kind of settled, I was uh, really left with that silence. I thought about it an enormous amount and I still do. So, yeah, I do think, you know, it's strange. It's not just that your emotions change over time when you're grieving. It's you actually find yourself thinking about entirely different things. Mm -hmm. The second part of the book deals with with finding and especially the finding of love. And at the outset, you talk about Menno's paradox of looking for a thing without really knowing what you're looking for, which is a pretty good summary of what most of us do when we're, when we're looking for love. Was that on your mind when you started thinking about relationships for yourself, that sense of I'm, I'm looking, but I don't know what I'm looking for. I mean, I certainly was aware of it. You know, I think anybody who knew me in my pre, uh, prior to my current relationship would have said that I was just incredibly picky. Uh, and <laughs> that, which I, I, I feel proud of being picky. You know, I held out for the right one and, and here she is and it's made my life incredible. Um, but, you know, there's no question that you have this weird feeling of like, well, I, you know what isn't right? But, but you don't know what is going to be right. Uh, and, and you feel like you have these kind of broad ideas or, or, you know, kind of qualifications almost as if it were for a job, but they're all sort of nonsense, right? You're, you, you just, you do have that kind of deep sense of like, well, I'll know it when I see it, you know, or I certainly will know when it's not right. But, you know, it's, it's kind of almost, right, it's an act of narrowing down instead of actually being able to go out and say, well, this is the thing that I'm, that I'm looking for. When you found the woman named C in the book, Casey in Real Life, did it reveal to you what you had been hoping to find? Or did that event show you, you know, what you hadn't known you were looking for? Yeah, I mean, the answer is definitely both. You know, it's the, almost almost the moment I met her, not perhaps quite that soon, but but certainly by the end of our first date, it was absolutely obvious to me that this is what I had been looking for. But of course, you're right that it was also... Um, you know, kind of low level comical in the sense of like, this is what I was looking for. <laughs> you know, it was obviously her, but I, I wouldn't have, um, you know, I, I, I could have spent the rest of my life brainstorming the, you know, what my future partner was going to be like, and I wouldn't have gotten close to describing who she actually is. It's, which is wonderful. It's so wonderful to be surprised that way. Does writing about the relationship change the relationship? You know, does kind of observing it through that lens that you've observed so many other things um, either 
kind of put more of a magnifying glass on it as you would normally, or just at least change the lens through which you're looking at it? You know, again, it's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I think, I, I don't know in part because um, I wouldn't say the act of writing it changed the relationship at all. The book is of course very young, but it's a newborn mm -hmm. basically. And uh, I suppose it's possible that um, talking about it a lot or having a lot of other people have access to it could change it in some ways. Although, you know, you um, noted just a moment ago that my partner who in real life is named Casey, uh, I refer to her in the book as C. And uh, I'm sure there's some readers who are going to find that annoying like, or, or think it's coy or that it's meant to be some kind of Roman clay, like figure out who she is, which of course is not the case. She's in the acknowledgments and it's, it's fairly public knowledge that we're together. Um, but it was a kind of, um, it was a very small act on my part of, um, of honoring her and our relationship in the kind of fullness that is not in this memoir and never will be. Partly because this uh, this particular memoir is not at all meant to be completist, right? It's, um, it draws on my life in order to mm -hmm. think about these broad experiences of, of loss and of discovery and falling in love. You're not writing the definitive autobiography of Catherine Schultz. Very far from it, let alone the definitive right. autobiography of my, or biography of my partner. So, you know, I, I kept a lot out of these pages, not because I'm embarrassed of anything in our life, but because it just frankly didn't belong. Like the, the constraints of the book were mm -hmm. obvious to me. Uh, and, and so it doesn't really feel like there's, it doesn't feel like my relationship will be changed because, um, because the parts of it that I focus on they're beautiful. They're incredibly precious to me. You know, they include my wedding. I tell that story, our first date, you know, things from our life that are, that are really deeply meaningful to me, but they somehow don't feel um, vulnerable to change in that way. It's a little bit like the grief. I already knew exactly how I felt about them by the time I wrote them down. In your previous book, Being Wrong, as well as your essays and criticism, they are intellectual expressions of your curiosity. The Great Gatsby, how other people experience running, plate tectonics, and their discontents. Uh, and they're, they're also mostly things that are outside yourself, where Lost and Found is more personal, or at least it spirals out from personal experience. So kind of along that vein, as you started writing the book, how did you decide how much of yourself to reveal and expose, how much of other people to reveal and expose? Mm. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, you know, my partner early on, she read the book all along as I was writing it, but at some point when she sat down and read the whole thing beginning to end, she did kind of pick her head up and say, you know, it's very interesting for an alleged memoir, this book is like much more about your father, me, and frankly, my father and family than it is about you, <laughs> which, you know, it's true, it's a, it's an odd <laughs> memoir in that sense, it's not that I'm not in it, um, and I'm, I'm actually not a private person, like I'm perfectly happy to share almost anything from my life, but it was, it felt quite clear to me what belonged in the book and what didn't, uh, which again was, was dictated entirely by this kind of larger vision I had for it. I knew from the beginning, um, it's not that I was um, dying to write a memoir, although I, it's a genre I find really interesting and really fun to read in, uh, but I was really interested in writing about the category of loss and how strange it is and how just this 
you know, incredible range of things belongs inside it from our fathers to our car keys, to elections, to faith. I mean, it's just this enormous and capacious category and likewise discovery, right? Um, and this really fascinating experience of coming across something new and, and what that's like for our minds and what's that, what that's like emotionally. Uh, and then as you pointed out, this, this kind of problem of conjunction, the fact that um, it's not like we ever get to do one of those things at a time or one of anything at a time in life, you're always doing and feeling 30 things at once. So I was interested in these kind of buckets of experience and buckets are really useful because it's relatively obvious what belongs in them and what does not. And, uh, and, and so the book to me, in a certain sense, um, it, the book dictated its own contents, which was a great gift to me. I, I knew uh, you just had to kind of pick something up and look at it and say, does it belong in one of these buckets? And if it didn't, it was like, goodbye. <laughs> it does feel like though, it, at least as a reader, that when you, when you switch from that mode that you work in, that's very much observational into your own feelings and emotions that you find a different gear that there's something that pulls on different strings than your other more observational writing. And I wasn't sure if that was just me reading that, or if that was something that you felt too, as you were kind of delving into your own experiences of some of those ideas. I mean, that just makes me want to be the one asking the questions. You know, I'm, I'm obviously incredibly curious <laughs> what it's like for a reader, you know, and, and readers are, are a large and varied bunch. So I won't ask you to speak for all of them. Uh, but you know, I certainly was mindful writing this book that um, probably the single biggest challenge of it was to try to put together the really personal stories with this larger inquiry into losing and finding and, and conjunction, as it were, um, because I didn't want it to feel herky-jerky. And I knew that there was a risk that readers who wanted pure memoir would sort of think, what are we doing here? Kind of straying from the story and readers who are intellectually interested in these categories might feel like, all right, enough of your love story, you know? So I, I certainly, um, I was mindful that they're very different gears in terms of writing. I mean, yeah, I guess if I'm actually, if I really think about it, uh, it's really great to write about your own life. At least it was for me. I do not, um, I do not, always find writing particularly easy, but I will say it was a pleasure and a joy to write about my love story. And in that sense, um, it did feel different. It felt like it just sit down and like settle into the, into the thoughts and, and out they come, which again is, you know, you won't catch me saying that very often about the writing process. <laughs> this is, as you say, it's a book about both losing and love, but at its core, it feels like a happy book. It's a, it's a celebratory book, uh, which is a rare thing when loss is a part of the story. Did you know it was going to be like that going in when you started out? I think I did. And I'm so happy to hear you say that. Um, I do think this is a happy book. I think it's a book about um, three very happy families and happy relationships. Uh, I think it's a book that's kind of um, advocating for happiness in a certain sense. Um, which I don't mean to suggest that it's equally available to all people uh, or, or that the things that um, make us sad or angry uh, or disturbed should not. They certainly should. Um, but it's true that in some deep sense, I, I kind of cast my lot on the side of joy and of hope whenever I can. So I certainly knew the book was going to do that. I'm really glad to hear it feels that way to you. Uh, and yes, I mean, this book grew out of an essay I wrote for The New Yorker after my dad died, as, as you said. And um, after that was published, 
a couple of people asked me, like, would you ever want to just expand that into a book? And in the moment, my answer was, you know, no, I wouldn't. Um, and there were many reasons for that. But the chief one was that they were asking, did I want to write a memoir about losing my dad? And I did not. Um, it's not, uh, you know, there's always more to say about grief. It's a very large and complicated experience. Uh, and certainly I, I always love writing about my dad, but I didn't want to write something that was just focused on grief. Um, I think books like that are very important. I've read many that are very beautiful, but you're right. Uh, you're right to identify the, the kind of core of happiness through all of this. And it was not until I realized that there was a book to be written that had that at its, its core that I actually wanted to write it. And as you say, you've, you've read through this, this category where there are, particular books that you that you pulled on or ones that you particularly didn't want to be like as you were trying to get your head around what a longer form exploration of this could look like? Mm. Well, there were certainly books I couldn't be like, you know, um, we're talking about happiness. Uh, the genre of contemporary memoir um, is pretty low on happiness. That's not usually part of what you get on the label when <laughs> when you're picking one. Yes, of those you might up. get kind of you know redemption or, or or kind of I triumphed over all the trauma in the end. But there is yes. a lot of um, there is a lot of trauma and a lot of dysfunction in contemporary memoir. I don't say that critically. It's I'm, I actually think it's a it's a really great and important thing that uh, we live at a time and in a place where people can write about terrible things that that happened to them uh, and and make meaning of it and. Um, you know, make transparent some some of the the kinds of lives that that people suffer and struggle through. But I didn't have that kind of life. <laughs> you know, I couldn't write that kind of book because I I um, am incredibly fortunate. You know, life has showered every possible uh, kind of gift and good upon me, including the great gift of familial love of every kind. Uh, so, you know, I. A lot of memoirs that I've really relished, you know, Mary Carr's The Liar Club or Liar's Club or Jeanette Wall's uh, The Glass Castle. Uh, these are incredible books, but I certainly wasn't going to write anything like them. The other kind of memoir that's really popular is, of course, the celebrity memoir. But, you know, I'm not Michelle Obama. So <laughs> that, that was off the table. Um, so, you know, and in terms of examples, there are certainly memoirs that uh, that I find incredible and that I thought a lot about while writing this book. And I guess the two that, that come to mind, um, I have said in print how much I admired Helen McDonald's Ages for Hawk, uh, which is a just tremendous story about losing a father uh, that is somehow simultaneously also kind of a mini biography of T.H. Uh, White, who wrote The Once and Future King, uh, and also basically a guide to how to train a goshawk. So it's a, it's an unusual book. Uh, and in that sense, I think it was a little bit of an inspiration for me because in the moments that I thought I'm doing something a little weird here, <laughs> it was comforting to remember that Helen McDonald did something really weird and it, it came out spectacularly. Um, and then I also thought quite a lot about A Grief Observed, which is a very slim little book by C.S. Lewis of the Narnia Chronicles uh, that, that's about uh, the death of his wife from cancer. And uh, it's a really beautiful and, and plain spoken account of his grief over that. And it was interesting for me to read because it's um, it's explicitly very Christian. I mean, he's wrestling with his grief, but he's really wrestling with his God. You know, how, how, mm -hmm. how can you possibly cause me to suffer in this way? And, and what am I supposed to infer from it? How am I supposed to make sense of life from this? And that was interesting to me. I'm not Christian. 
uh, my partner is, and, and some of this book is about kind of different relationships to the mysteries of the universe. <laughs> uh, and, and so C.S. Lewis was kind of always lurking there in the background because after I read it, I felt like, well, that's interesting, but how do you struggle with these issues if, you're, if your ground floor isn't Jesus or God? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you make sense of these issues then? Going back a little further, you've said um, that you more or less knew from childhood that you would be a writer. And so I'm I'm interested in how that gathered momentum, um, because I knew from a very young age I was going to be an astronaut, but that did not <laughs> – there were, there were no proof points along the way that allowed that to really, like, gather steam. So um, – how did that start to take shape over time? And what did it look like at the very beginning? Well, first of all, I need to say in your defense that it is vastly harder to become an astronaut than a writer. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll never know, will I? <laughs> um, I, how, yeah, what did it look like? I mean, it looked like an extremely nerdy little nine-year-old is what it looked like at the beginning. Uh, I, yes, I loved to read and write for as long as I can remember. Um, and uh, and wore it on my sleeve, which was not always a popular choice with my schoolmates, um, partly because my sleeves were always like poorly chosen. You know, it wasn't like I was cool in other in other respects, wearing the right clothes, but secretly reading, you know, whatever I was reading. Um, but yeah, I I think for a long time, I mean, it's funny, did it gather momentum? I mean, yes, in a certain sense, here I am making my living doing what I always wanted to do, which feels like a joy and an incredible stroke of luck or many strokes of luck along the way. But, you know, like anything, when you're actually living it, it has a lot of fits and starts. Um, to begin with, I, I think if you'd asked me when I was nine or 12 or probably even 19, I would have told you I wanted to write fiction. Um, partly because I think fiction is a little more accessible as a career when you're a kid. It's not like kids sit around reading nonfiction for the most part. I mean, maybe you have like an awesome book about uh, outer space, for example, or, or brontosauruses or something, but, um, but we read as kids a lot more stories. And so I kind of naturally thought, well, if you want to write what you write is, is little made up adventures, you know? Uh, and in fact, I wrote of those, a lot of those along the way. They were charmingly bad when I was, you know, nine and 10 and um, humiliatingly bad when I was 19 and 20. And at some point I realized we were talking about writing gears earlier. I just, I really don't have the fiction gear. I'm in awe of people who do. I, it feels to me like they must have literally just like a, an inner world that looks utterly different from mine. Um, but once I kind of knew, okay, <laughs> I'm definitely in the, in the nonfiction lane here. Um, you know, how does a career gather steam? Um, slowly in my experience. You know, I, I think from any given endpoint, uh, it, it, it all seems like it just kind of fell into place somehow. And I certainly feel like I, I couldn't be happier or luckier with where I've wound up in terms of a writing career. And obviously writing careers are kind of scarce these days, but how it feels along the way is you knock on a lot of doors and people say no. You know, and it's a it's an actual miracle when when somehow suddenly the the, the wheel spins and people are knocking on your door and sometimes you even have to say no. Tell me a little bit about where you've you've ended up now. You are a staff writer for the New Yorker. At some point, you knocked on that door and they let you in. What did that uh, What did that process look like? Uh, it was amazing. Yeah, I mean, in, in my in my like secret heart, I'd been knocking on that door since I was like you know fourteen. But uh, but there's no real door to knock on when you're like a you know kid in Ohio just kind of like reading old back issues and marveling at Pauline Kael or whatever. Um, 
what did that look like? I, um, so you mentioned, I wrote this other book being wrong. And after that came out, I started doing some, uh, writing some book reviews. Great thing about writing a book is people ask you to write about other books. So I did that for a while. And then New York magazine, uh, offered me, a, an actual job as a book critic, uh, which was amazing. And I loved it. And, um, I, you know, as memory has it literally what happened is I, you know, again, when you're a book critic, you wind up doing things like, you know, going to a party full of a bunch of other book critics because it's book critic season or whatever. <laughs> and, um, and there was an editor at the New Yorker there, uh, who, who pulled me aside and he'd read a piece I'd just written. He said, let's have coffee sometime. And, uh, and then I proposed an idea to him over that cup of coffee. I said, I want to write about death certificates. I thought death certificates were a really interesting kind of subgenre. No one thinks about it. turns out death certificates are really interesting, but, um, you know, what did it look like to knock on the door of the New Yorker? It looked like someone tentatively saying, come on in. And then me having like the worst case of writer's block I've ever had <laughs> and trying for like 11 months to write about death certificates, which did eventually happen courtesy of a very patient man who is now actually my, my, um, my editor there. But, you know, as with all things, it, in retrospect, it's like, oh, magic, you met someone at the New Yorker, they hired you. But in the process, what it's actually like is you do one freelance piece, it goes terribly, you feel really embarrassed, you can't believe they let you do another one. You know, it, it, it does just pick up steam slowly. I'll, I'll ask a, one of those like correlation or causation questions. You, you wrote your first book, Being Wrong, then started work as, as a book critic and an essayist. And, and since then, it, 12 years then, or, or more between the sort of the first book and the second one, did that work that you were doing, whether it was book reviews or, or working as a critic and essayist, just take up all of the space that was available for, uh, for writing? Or was it just not another thing that felt book length in between? Uh, it turns out I am almost as picky about book ideas as I am about, you know, life partners. Uh, it's probably for the best. I think it is, to tell you the truth, if only for my own sanity, uh, writing a book is not necessarily easy. Um, and, you know, a lot of a lot of ideas, including a lot of excellent ideas, don't want to be books. You know, they, they want to be something shorter than that. And uh, actually, there's kind of weird pressures just in the writing world in that, you know, we don't really have like 25,000 word articles anymore. So you're sort of in the land of you're writing something that's six or 8,000 words, or you're writing a book. And um, that's, that's dangerous because there are ideas that are too big for a, even a long magazine article, but too small for a book. Uh, and yes, I, I really was just waiting for the right thing to come along. And every once in a while I would have an idea and kind of flirt with it a little bit. Like, could I imagine that working? You know, yeah, maybe, but it never just grabbed me. And, uh, and, and with this book, what dropped into place was the structure. Actually, what dropped into place was that last section and. Uh, and, and the minute I conceived of that, I right away said, aha, that's, that's actually the book. I'm going to write that. And it's funny because the, the structure and the ability to fill each of those three containers in, in a lot of ways seems to help this book avoid that, um, that trap that people who mostly write articles find their way into of 
how do I build something from an article out into a book? Like this seemed like a book size container that you were that you were filling with a number of kind of distinct but linked ideas, um, which meant that it never got to that place of, okay, this could be done now and we're like 15,000 words in, <laughs> which was really nice to see. Thank you for that. Well, I'm very relieved to hear you say that. In fact, I actually, um, I kept cutting things. You know, this was, I had, I had a few convictions about this book before it began. And one of them was that it needed to not be terribly long. Mm. Uh, and and um, that everything that I needed to say could get said in, in relatively concise form, which caused everyone in my life to make fun of me because I'm not famous for being concise on the page. But I said, no, no, this book, I'm telling you, it is going to be under 275 pages. And in fact, I think it's about 250. So yeah, I was... Um, I am glad to hear you say it never felt like, why are we, why is this still going on? <laughs> you know, because I really didn't want it to feel that way. I wanted to ask you a question about being wrong. That book was written um, more than 10 years ago now and is a great study of the, the different kinds of wrongness and why it's, you know, okay and humane and, and, and often valuable to be wrong. Um, but it feels like we're in a particular time with regards to being wrong, where there's never been so much certainty in wrongness or celebration in holding on to it and defending it. And I was I was wondering if if that's been on your mind over the past few years, uh, got kind of reflecting on where we are now in public discourse relative to these ideas that you were putting together, you know, a dozen years ago. It's been on my mind nonstop. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's a really interesting question of whether I could have even written this book right now. Um, at one point I thought kind of in, at one point in 2016, I thought, man, I should just reissue this book because actually there was a moment when I, I felt like, well, a lot of people have been wildly wrong, uh, certainly in my country about, about, about kind of where the world was heading. And um, it seemed important to kind of confront that and think about it. But over the course of the last handful of years, you know, it's really tough. I stand by the core ideas and, and even more than that, the kind of tenor of that book. Uh, that book is basically a, a song in praise of doubt and intellectual humility. Mm -hmm. And I believe those to be incredibly important things. And yet we live in an era in which the sowing of doubt has become cynical and politically motivated uh, and, and is actually deployed not to open and expand conversations, but to shore up people's own positions and, uh, and denigrate the positions of others. And I don't think I could stand up right now and, and full-throatedly champion a posture of you know, we need to be prepared to examine all of our core beliefs. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm partly because because I thought we shared a set. I don't generally speak of a broad we, the, the world is too complicated and divisive for that. But, you know, I did have a sort of general feeling of like, well, there are some precepts that we all share. And, you know, in a moment like ours, actually, I'm, I'm not really prepared to entertain doubt about whether I believe that, um, you know, free, equal, unfettered access to the vote is is a core of democracy. You know, that's actually not on the table for debate for me. So, yeah. <laughs> this is not in the category of both sides questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It is in the, yeah, it is in the actually increasingly large category of, I'm very sorry, there's not another side to this one. Um, right. And because I feel that so strongly and because I feel that that questions that should be settled and that 
moral questions that do not have another side, another side that's remotely, you know, conscionable, uh, are suddenly kind of being elbowed onto the table. Uh, I, I, I don't think I could write this book right now. I stand by it. I'm glad I wrote it. It, it was the right book for the moment. Um, and I certainly think in plenty of narrow ways, you know, in your own personal relationships in your workplace, you know, if you work on airline safety, <laughs> there, there, there are many, many, many respects in which I think the book is still, you know, kind of full-throatedly applicable, but in the political arena, it feels a little more complicated to me right now. You are now a, a, a two-mom, two-writer, one-child family. And as I say that, to be clear, that is only three people, not five people. Um, a, a, <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. A, a baby throws everything up in the air, both literally and figuratively. How have the two of you maintained two busy writing careers with the addition of a tiny chaos agent into the mix? <laughs> uh, well, how have we done so? I mean, for it's interesting. This is obviously an important question. And yet, and I'm sure some parents will identify with this. It also feels a little beside the point in that our tiny chaos agent is, is the center of our universe and she's amazing and delightful and all the hows feel a little bit trivial. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's the what, it's the her that, that feels central. Um, you know, it's a really interesting question. On the one hand, um, I always want to be realistic and honest when talking about parenting. Um, we got an unbelievably, ridiculously easy baby. She's insanely cheerful. She sleeps 12 hours a night without making a peep. Uh, she's just, she makes our life easy. And yet life with a baby is still not easy. It's just, you know, it's, it's just around the clock, you know, there she is. Someone's got to be taking care of her. Uh, we're, we're very fortunate. We have family nearby who dote on her and, and provide a lot of childcare. Um, but I think, on the one hand, I, I never want to diminish how much work it is uh, and, and how much it really can sideline everything else because it does feel self-evidently like the most important thing uh, in the world and, and certainly the, the urgent one, the thing you always have to pay attention to first, you know, not your email, not the article you're writing, not the book you wish you were reading. So there's no honest accounting of life with a baby that doesn't include the fact that suddenly there are just way few hours in the day than there used to be. That said... You know, I'm like a little fascinated by the way that I feel like, um, especially in literary circles, you know, somehow having a baby is potentially an impediment to a literary career. And yet, for instance, drug addiction or alcoholism is like kind of sexy and interesting and just a thing a lot of literary people do. Well, you know what is actually really bad for the number of hours in your day and your ability to write and also everything else in your life? It's the addiction, not the baby. Um, which is just by way of saying I um again I don't want to I don't want to diminish how much has changed our lives, including our available hours to write. It radically has. And yet um I don't feel I, I resist any notion that they are somehow in opposition or, or, or that um, or that having a baby is a problem for a writer's career. Now I'm just fascinated by what would have happened if like the the natural accoutrement of that like macho, you know, kind of 1940s, 1950s writer was and he had, you know, he took care of many babies as opposed to yeah. was <laughs> was constantly drinking, you know, this Hemingway and he's you know, like, yeah, here he is with a child on each arm. Like, I, I think we would have had a much different 
you know, kind of general writing culture that we'd be working our way through right now. Totally. I would love to know what that would be like. Yes. <laughs> Specifically, you are of that particular cohort, the pandemic parent. And as ah. as an observer and an expert on you know, losing and loss, we've had two years where we have set a lot of things aside, where we've distanced ourselves you know, because we had to, or because there was no choice to do otherwise. And we've also pulled ourselves inward into these, you know, these very small and contained groups. Um, looking at it through the lenses of what you've just been writing about, how, um, you know, how have you kind of colored the last two years? Hmm. Well, it's really fascinating, to be honest. I started this book well before the pandemic began and it was quite shocking to watch the world kind of line up with everything I was writing about. It was so much of what I was writing about. Uh, the most obvious being loss, you know, there was suddenly just this shocking range of loss. I mean, we were losing things. Uh, obviously the, the most the most horrific and tragic was just the scale of loss of life. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and secondarily to that, you know, loss of jobs and, and financial security and loss of education for so many kids. But, you know, it, it was a little staggering to the point of how capacious this category of loss is. I mean, we really lost things we didn't know we could lose. Like, who knew that we had to, like, regard as precious the ability to, like, go to the grocery store? You know, I mean, just things vanished from our life that, that didn't kind of, frankly, seem like they could vanish. So, you know, just as I had been thinking about this really strange category and how we manage it, including how we manage our emotions when we're simultaneously, you know, incredibly worried because our really beloved elderly neighbor is hospitalized with COVID and also really bummed that we can't like go out with our friends on Friday night. Like there was just a lot of management around the range of loss uh, in the culture in general, uh, as I was writing about it. But almost more striking, strikingly to me, um, this book is about love and grief, not just as distinct phenomenon, but as linked phenomenon mm -hmm. and as, as things that we often experience at once because we often experience many things at once. But I, I think that that kind of conjunction has also been a really omnipresent feature of the pandemic and really emotionally challenging for people. Not that this wasn't always a characteristic of our life, but I think a lot of people, you know, found themselves, uh, you know, really anxious, about their parents, right, in, in the pandemic era and desperately trying to keep them safe uh, and simultaneously actually kind of happy that they had so much time with their kids at home, you know? Uh, and certainly a lot of people were really happy to have a lot of time with their kids at home, but also losing their minds because they had no childcare and, and school was really interrupted. And I, I just think these kinds of, um, these kinds of mixed feelings and mixed emotions have been really omnipresent in this era and hard to navigate. So it was interesting to feel like I was really kind of done with the whole draft of the book when the pandemic, there was some loose ends and whatnot, but, but, but most of it had been drafted uh, when the pandemic really kicked into gear, at least in this country. And um, it was strange, you know, I, um, I'm not a Cassandra. There's nothing prophetic about the book. It's not like I was like, Behold, a pandemic is coming, but but emotionally, a lot of what I was writing about then I watched kind of play out around me. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. It's been a really fun conversation. I've been speaking with Catherine Schultz, author of the new memoir, Lost and Found. 
The books we've talked about are all gathered and waiting for you at Kobo in Conversations, home on the web, kobo.com slash conversation. There is a link in the show notes to make it easy. Be sure to catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen. Kobo in Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamley. Thank you for listening.